Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Sea Worker Chronicles podcast by Maritime Journal, where you'll hear the latest in the commercial marine industry. After three decades serving the British Royal Navy, Commodore Mel Robinson is stepping away from her last role, leading the 4,000 maritime reserves who support the Navy. I went to meet her at Portsmouth Naval Base, and this is a snapshot of our conversation about her 30-year voyage. My father was a policeman and my mother was a nurse, so I grew up in, um, in, a, in a home environment where there was both hierarchy and uniform and discipline and order. And um, when I came to make my career choices when I graduated with a degree in biology, um, I, my instinct was to go into the police force because my dad had, had sort of um, made sort of progression there. I did look at nursing as well. And my, my dad kind of said, I don't really think that the police force is somewhere where I'd want you to go. I think he'd obviously had a good insight as to, as to how that was working, how women were being placed in that organisation at the time. And women had just gone to sea. Um, so we put our first women onto grey warships afloat in 1990, uh, 1991. What, what prompted that? Was there a sudden law change or...? No, I think it was a, just the Navy moving with the time. Okay. And um, they, we, we weren't affording uh, the same opportunities to women as we were, as we were men. And um, I think it was a very brave decision by the Admiralty to, to change the system. Um, and I wanted to be at the leading edge of that. There was an opportunity to do something that women had never done before. So it was an open book. It was, you know, I mean, an open sea. The, the but with a bio, didn't you need something else than a biology degree to sort of get into the door? No, so uh, straight graduate entrance. So um, the Admiralty Interview Board will... will um, so the, the initial offer is, is structured around um, whether you enter with a, a degree or, or A-levels. With a degree, it sort of accelerated your your the level at which you'd enter the system, and the Admiralty Interview Board back then was a three-day process by which it sort of took graduates and understood whether they were whether they had the potential to be future leaders. I chose to be a warfare officer, so that was a, that was the first decision point for me. I wanted to be at sea. Um, but had you got experience of being at sea at all? None whatsoever. Had so, you ever rowed a boat? <laughs> no. So I grew up in Mid Wales, so landlocked. The first time I walked onto a, onto a Puss's Grey, I was in the Navy. I'd passed out of Dart, or I was I'd, I was in Dartmouth, and I was going onto my sort of sea acquaintance. That was the first time I'd ever stepped onto a warship. Within within hours, days, weeks, I knew that I wanted to be a warfare officer because once the the ship left the wall, um, there was one person in command that's that appeared and does. Um, control everything in that ship from from the routines to how it operates in war and clearly I, I had um, an ambition to, to do that I to wanted be that to person command. once you're immersed into living in a grey box um, and with a lot of other men presumably predominantly men and so how, how was that it was great fun I was never the sole female on board I know some women have had that experience. I didn't have that experience. For me, underrepresentation um, uh, made me sort of stand up, stand out, didn't it? So um, it's a choice in life. Do you want to be, you know, the big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big in a big pond? And um, I kind of think there were there were great opportunities um, for the navy to see how women were leading and 
how we were doing our business and um, I, I stood out for that. Whether I stood out because I was a woman or whether I stood out because I was just being a really good warfare officer that, that, that had sort of good perception and was able to lead. Um, well, I was going to say, I wonder if actually being a woman did help because you stood out for that very reason, they noticed you. Mm. Not saying that you didn't have the qualities, but no. maybe you weren't more noticeable, don't know? Yeah, I've never, so I've never had any sense of me being um, pushed through the system because of, my, because of my gender. I was one of two women to, um, to take command on the same day. Um, of a small of a small patrol boat but that was that my moment in history that that you know that that is the I was one of the first women to command a, to, to command a warship it ran with a permanent crew of five um, it was 20 meters in length it was one of um, 14 um, patrol vessels of its kind the, the beauty of the patrol vessel command is that early on in somebody's career you can give them something small that's, that's, that's contained to UK waters because of the nature of the vessel. Um, you learn the basic principles, and if you do well at that, then you have an opportunity to then step up and, and go and drive bigger and better things. So my first assignment was on HMS Brave as a watchkeeper, um, and um, then I went to navigate HMS Shetland, which is a small patrol vessel. I've never doubted my ability to command. The challenge I had was that when I when I joined the Navy, I knew I wanted at some stages, as well as women like me do, I wanted to get married. So I wanted to meet the man of my dreams, and I wanted to have children. So the only doubts doubts that were forming in my mind at, at that stage were how am I going to do that? We didn't have the policies in place at that time to deconflict sea service when it came to us having children. My model of motherhood and marriage was me being at home to look after the children. And that's what Mel and Guy Robinson did. They had two children, now aged 21 and 22. When the youngest was two and a half, Mel started to think about going back to work. She knew the Navy couldn't offer her the seagoing career she'd had before, but she had a conversation with them about a scheme called the Full-Time Reserve Service Scheme that gifted people the chance to work as reservists. And because there were contracts for specific roles, she was able to apply for a position that happened to be in the base port and didn't have a seagoing liability with it. This command has um, 20 um, units, stroke stone frigates, ships, that are based around the UK. Um, it's the entry point for reservists to um, train and learn military skills, their military skills alongside their civilian skills. Um, and I'm challenging um, mentally um, the, the view that um, adventure and getting, getting one's feet wet is all based on being a platform at sea because that's not, that's not the case. So this notion that, um, and I think the Navy are really challenged here, this notion that you know, you join the Navy and have to be at sea to pursue your career, you know, it's fundamentally flawed, because, and I've demonstrated that, because um, I, couldn't, I couldn't continue that seagoing um, journey, but I have commanded um, um, a formation of 20 ships, albeit ashore. My challenge has been helping the Navy recognise the more, the more diverse we are in our approach to using those skills and nurturing those skills the better we will become so and and in managing a system of reservists 
my challenge has come in helping all of those people understand how they can overcome the challenges that I had in having civilian employees, in having families, um, in having other challenges in their lives that they're able to overcome to realise their potential in a military uniform. That's been my challenge. And, and I've relished that because the Navy, I, I presented that challenge to the Navy in 1998. I was, I was really talented. I demonstrated potential, but I wanted a family. And, you know, I was saying to the system, why, why, because I want, I'm making these choices, are you una unable to progress that career beyond where I am currently? And I spent my, spent my career challenging the system, change, change your policies, make, make the system better for men and women um, to enable them to realise their potential. So my biggest challenge has been, has been challenging the status quo. Well, especially in something like military, when it is so regimental by description and by tradition yeah, and, to, and, to overcome and those absolutely. things. And the hierarchy, you know, challenging, challenging the Navy to, to understand whether, whether it wants to deploy skills into a hierarchy and make people start at the bottom and work their way up to the top. To, up to the top. Or, do you challenge the system and say, well, actually, why can't you parachute those skills in at any point in that hierarchy? Because if, you've, if, if an individual has the leadership acumen and has the skills to, to come in as a commander, then it needs to come in as a commander. Why would you sort of feed them from the, from the bottom up? So, so my challenge has been all about challenging the system to, to look at how it did things in the past and is it, is it is it fit for you know the navy of the future and the way that we employ people and skills is changing and and i've changed it if i look at across my um my 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 tenure um i will have been in command for three years i've driven a, a whole scale transformation of the organization um so in order to um help people realize their potential um, I've aligned our branch structures in the reserves to the regulars, so you can seamlessly transfer from one system to okay, the other. Okay, and that's other. something that you've introduced. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we've changed the structures. I took command in the pandemic, so right. um, I I drove the largest mobilisation of um, reservists um, uh, to support the nation um that we'd seen since um since the iraq war when we locked down in march 2020 um i went out to my population and said you know who who is prepared to step forwards and um and step into um full-time employment to support the nation 900 people volunteered in 48 hours and of those 900 um over 300 of them came into full-time service over the over 2020 through to 2021. I described myself as stepping up and out actually because um, I, I'm at the top of the structure so uh, I don't want to I don't want to hang around and um, I've got a lot to a lot to give and contribute and and I really think I'm done with the uniform. I, I'm I understand the value that sort of hierarchy brings to, to, to military structures, but I'm kind of ready to step away from that and um, really looking forward to 
taking my my experience as a as a leader, um, taking my experience as a as a woman that has had to function within our executive um, spine, um, taking that forwards into into a different environment. When I was um, pregnant with my with my son, and I realised that I was going to have to step away from the navy because I was pregnant. Um, we, I felt at the time I was being forced out of the system because the system didn't didn't have didn't have the systems around me to support me. But most importantly, I can feel myself choking. Most importantly, there was a supply chain issue around our maternity uniform at the time. We had a maternity uniform. We'd only just designed it. Um, but in my case, there was no there was no uniform that I could take off the shelf and wear once I was pregnant and and I had to go into civilian clothes as I was leaving as I was pregnant and leaving the service and that was very damaging for me I felt completely rejected by the organization I was angry that it hadn't built the right um, support systems around me to to respect me and me and uh, and the baby who you know, it was was I was growing, um, and and I felt really let down by the service. And so, when I left, I was angry and bitter about my career. I was angry and bitter about this, their inability to even provide me basic human needs, such as the clothes I was wearing. Um, and I lost my sense of identity because when I lost that uniform, I credited who I was, the essence of myself, to to the navy the values that, because we, we talk to the Navy's values from the minute you step into Dartmouth, it's all about, you know, you take on the organisation's values. And, and I think in losing the, the uniform and in feeling that I'd been cast to one side, I just lost all sense of myself. And when I, when I was then, you know, struggling as a mother, my husband was deployed and I wasn't in the Navy anymore and I was really not understanding how I was going to reinvent myself really. I had to go back to basics because I'd lost sense of who I was. And um, I, I came to realise that my value set wasn't what the Navy had given me when I joined Dartmouth. My value set was what my parents had given me. My, my mother was a nurse, so all of my compassion and curiosity comes from my mum. And my dad was a policeman, so my sense of social responsibility and fairness and transparency came from my dad and I realised that the Navy hadn't given me any of those things, I was born with them. And so, as I come to leave the Navy the second time, I'm not making that mistake again. So I'm very clear as to who I am, what my values are, where they came from, and I wouldn't want anybody to suffer in transition in the way that I did the first time around. So I've been very careful and deliberate in terms of talking about my transition up and out because this is not about the Navy not wanting me anymore, this is about me wanting different choices for myself and realising that at 55 I've got about another 10 years to make a contribution and take those skills and give them to somebody else. You've been listening to Commodore Mel Robinson, Head of the British Royal Navy Maritime Reserves, talking to me, Debbie Mason, Editor Maritime Journal. Thank you for listening to the Sea Worker Chronicles podcast by Maritime Journal. Follow us to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.